let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you so much, Father, that, Lord, you've preserved this nation, Lord. Um, Father, you've preserved us, you've preserved Israel, Lord, um, and you, throughout the age of persecution, Lord, you've preserved your church, Lord, just to undergo it, Lord, that you may be glorified. So we just pray, Lord, that tonight you would just give us a heart for those people and not only that lord but just give us a vision for what you have for us here in this nation lord we entrust you not tonight to you lord father send your spirit the teacher of all things to teach us we don't want to hear from man we want to hear from you lord in jesus name we pray amen all right so the church of smyrna smyrna funny joke I, I, my wife was asking me, oh, so you're doing the Church of Smirnoff tomorrow? No, Carol, there is no church that's named after vodka. And she's like, what is it called? Yeah, I was like, you're a sinner. She, you know, it was just a, yeah, married a bartender. Doesn't give an excuse. So, Smirna. It was a large and beautiful city. Some even called it the glory of Asia. It was about 40 miles north of Ephesus, and it was the center of learning and culture. It was really rich, extremely wealthy, and its main industry was wine. So the main thing, that the import and export there, was wine. The name Smyrna comes from the word myrrh, right? The myrrh was the very substance. It was the very item that was used to prepare the body of Jesus. You know, it was used to, to embalm bodies, dead bodies, before they were put into to burial, to the grave. But now let's, let's turn it into the, into the gear that I want to go to. Is What was worship for Smyrna? What was the life of worship. What were people worshiping in Smyrna? You know, it's really rich. It's really it has all this wine coming in and out. It is just a, a populated city, very large, very beautiful, but it was very idolatrous, very idolatrous. They had a street named the Golden Street, where they erected all these Greek gods, like Apollos, like. Zeus, Aphrodite, Asclepius, like all these gods were just lined up, right? And and this was of old. However, the new worship that was coming up, the emerging worship was for the Roman emperor. For the Roman emperor that people started to they the the government began to enforce this. They began to apply this to all the citizens, not only in Smyrna, but all the provinces in Rome. And the Smyrna was actually the first city to erect the temple to Dea Roma. Dea Roma is known as a spiritual symbol for Rome. It was known as the goddess of Rome. And they were the first city to do so. They were the first city to do this. They went as far as to worship the spirit of the city. The spirit of the city. Now take for instance Las Vegas. Sin City. What would they worship in Las Vegas if this was Rome? They would worship sin. Trip out on that. Now, they recognized and worship emperors of old... And now they are starting to worship the new emperors, right? And in 23 AD, there was a vote that went amongst all the provinces of who would be the first city to erect a temple for Tiberius Caesar. Guess who won? Smyrna. Smyrna won. Furthermore, Domitian, which is a ruler who was reigning at the time of Pentecost and during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, he was the first to demand, first emperor to demand the name Lord with the capital L. We see in the Old Testament, you know, people call each other lords. My Lord said to your Lord, this and that. They call each other Lord here and there, saying you're my master, but not with a capital L. 
it was always lowercase unless it was talking about Jesus or God. He was the first one to demand it from the people. And not only that, but what they had to do is every citizen had to go once a year. You know how once a year we vote? You know how once a year we pay taxes? Well, these people once a year had to go to the godhead of Caesar. It was this head that had a flat top, right? And they had to burn incense on top of his head. They had to burn incense declaring full control of themselves, declaring that they are in full control of the government. I mean, that, that the government is in full control of them. That they are showing reverence in doing this. They're like, Caesar, I worship thee. And every Roman citizen in that province and in other province, provinces, Roman provinces, had to do so. However, come in Pentecost, come in Christians, they're living in these cities. They're living in all the Roman provinces. It, it, it was inevitable. The gospel was spreading like wildfire. What would the Christian do? What would the Christian do? All he had to do was go burn the incense, and then he could actually go and partake of whatever sort of worship. He could go and be a Buddhist. He can go and listen to Hindu. He can go uh, and worship as whatever he wanted. But he had to do it after burning the incense to Caesar. Just gnarly. However, this is the very thing that the church of Smyrna would not do. This is the very thing that all the brothers and sisters of Smyrna would not do. They wouldn't go. Some would. Some would fall away. Definitely. However, the... the, the the majority would not. The majority would stand their ground and would reserve the name of Lord to only Jesus Christ. They wouldn't even formally conform. They wouldn't even formally just go say, okay, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this real quick, but then I'm going to go back and worship, you know, in our little underground church because we're being persecuted. No, they wouldn't do that. So we see that the cultural atmosphere the, the, the church body was going through so much. There's so much influence in the air. So much influence. So much like people were wanting to go. They, they, were, they were on their way. They were chanting as they went to go worship Tiberius Caesar. Or go worship at the Godhead of Caesar. Because they wanted to show allegiance with this power of the world. Rome was a huge power. And they were stoked to go worship. But the Christians wouldn't. The Christians would stand their ground. So we get to verse 8, the first verse of this um, church. The first thing says, And the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these, thing, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Stop there. This name, the first and the last, is the name of Yahweh. His name above all names. It's a name that uh, all men... The only name that men can be saved by, right? In the city where, like, it was, there was great reputation. The people were being conformed to the image of, of, of man. They were being conformed to the creation and not the creator. They didn't want to be in the, they, would, they didn't want to be made in the image of Christ. They wanted to be made in the image of man, of God, of Tiberius Caesar. They wanted, that's what they wanted. But, the Christians in the city stood up for the name of Jesus. You know, we, we they took, they went and, and searched the scriptures and applied Isaiah 44. They went and they tried to take Isaiah 44 to the Roman bank, right? We're told to take our promises to the bank. We're told to bank on our promise on the promises of the Lord, right? A little nugget I just thought it was just, man, they went to this bank of Rome. And the monetary unit of Rome could not contain it. They couldn't cash that check. Isaiah 44, let's read it. It's just an amazing little paragraph. Starting in, chapter, in verse 5. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's. 
and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order of, for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to me to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declare it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. This promise to them was what they had to stand by. It was what they had. It was a nugget that they had in their back pocket. So when people would come and say, hey, aren't you going to go worship? No. Let's turn to Isaiah 44 and I'll read it for you. There is no other God besides Yahweh. There is no other God besides Jesus. He says, show me. Is there, even God tells us, show me. Is there a God like me? There is not. I, I was on the way over here, and a long time ago, Scott Cunningham put out the CD. I think it was Worship Life, and Joe Tata has a song on there. There's none like you, dude. That song is amazing, and I was like, yeah, this is what I'm gonna teach on tonight. This is the, dude. There is none like Jesus. There's none who can sympathize with us. There's none who, who knows what we're feeling. There is none who has shown mercy like Jesus has. It's just, it's what the church of Smyrna had to bank on. That's why how this, to this church, God recalls the fact that not only he's the first and the last, but he was who was dead and now is alive. How appropriate, in a city full of idolatry, in a city full of sin, God makes known to them the fact that he resurrected from the dead. He goes and makes a clear distinction. As you see the golden street and there's all these other gods. But they're dead. They never resurrected. And he goes and says, I am the first and the last. Not only that, but I'm the one who was dead and now I'm alive forevermore. He reminds them of the fact there is no other God that came as a servant to die for them and was resurrected. You know, the, the church of Smyrna, they, they don't serve an image carved out of wood. They don't serve an attractive temple. They don't serve uh, a piece of marble. They serve the risen Lord. Just like us, we serve the same God. We're of one spirit. They serve the God who rose from the grave. And we need to keep that in mind. It's so powerful to know that we don't serve just, you know, Buddha with the big old belly, you know, and just sitting there with a happy face. No, we don't do that. You know, we don't serve a crucifix because a crucifix still has Jesus on the cross. He's not there anymore. You know, we, we serve a God that rose from the grave. Verse 9, he knows, he says, he knows that the, the works, he knows their tribulation, and he knows their poverty. He knows their works. Jesus knew that the church of Smyrna had no other agenda but to serve him. Jesus knew that the, the actions of the brethren, he knew what their goals were. He knew what their motivations were. He knew that they were on their face praying for, for these people that were falling away. He knew their works, and he had nothing against it. Notice that. Uh, all the other churches, there's, there's stuff. First he says, I know that you do this and that, and that's good. But, that word but just echoes and echoes. As we see the church age continue, it echoes and echoes and echoes till he comes back. Because that stuff's still going on. People are still being lukewarm. They keep on doing, they keep on having idols. They're not putting them away. It keeps on echoing. It's an echo that just goes unto eternity. Their tribulation. He knows what they're struggling with. He knows and can sympathize with it. And it, whether if it's sin or whether it was just the atmosphere, just the influences that were going on, man, 
It doesn't matter because why? Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He was in all points, in everything, in sex, in money, in power. He was tempted, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, everything. He was tempted in that. When he was going to the garden, he was sweating blood. It was so heavy. And yet without sin. Imagine these people just going through it and maybe having the temptation of falling away. Maybe having the temptation of recanting their beliefs and just living a comfortable life. Because that's what it was. It was either live in comfort, it was either live without persecution, or bow the knee to Jesus. I have a question. How many of us are satisfied with our walk with Jesus? How many of us are, are like, I'm, I'm cool right now. Like, I'm satisfied. I've had enough of Jesus. I've had just to the brim. Can we say that? We need to understand that if we are comfortable in our relationship with Jesus, we've said we've had enough with Jesus. We said we're proclaiming that we are completely satisfied and that's all. That's it. Do you, do you recognize that? I'm not, trip, I'm not trying to trip you out and say, oh, he, you know, I know he's sufficient for us. But do we want more? Like in a buffet, we can go and we can eat and we're satisfied and we're like, okay, no more. I can't have no more. That's it. I'm satisfied. Are we in that sense when Jesus puts all the promises in front of us and we've had enough? Do we still want more? We see all these other things. We see all these other promises. And at the end, the marriage supper. Do we want that? Because we have to go through all these things. We have to go through all these promises to get to the end of the buffet. It's like, boom, boom. We had salad. We had soup. Oh, yeah. Bring it on, Jesus. Oh, sweet chicken, fish. Oh, here's the steak. Oh, yeah. And then there's dessert. And then we're like, no, we've, we've had enough, Jesus, no more. We don't want dessert. And Jesus is like, no, it's the end of the meal. You need to have some. And then we have coffee because coffee comes at the end to cure the food coma. And Jesus is, and you're like, no, I've had enough. No, that's not what the Christian life is about. We can all come to an agreement that we need more of Jesus. Not that we just want it. We need it. I can vouch right now. I need more of Jesus. I'm not satisfied with what he's given me. I want to ask more of him. Come to, I'm still thirsty. Uh, there's, times where, uh, there's times in our near future that I'm going to be weary. I'm going to be heavy laden. I'm going to need to go to him. It's not, I'm not satisfied. Because I haven't experienced all the gifts yet. Everything that he wants to give me. I haven't experienced it yet because he hasn't given it to me yet. In relation to this church, talking about um, Smyrna at that time, at that specific time, okay, they could not conform. There was a thin line between the love of Jesus and the lies of Satan. There was a thin line between bowing the knee to Tiberius Caesar or to Domitian, whoever was reigning, or holding their ground and not conforming to the image of man. It was either or. You couldn't be a Christian if you were a pagan. You couldn't do that. There was no seeker-friendly church. You either worshipped the Godhead of Caesar, or you worshipped Jesus and you were persecuted for it. There was no seeker-friendly church. You either had to proclaim one or proclaim the other. But the thing was, is through all this, Jesus could sympathize. Through all this, he knew what they were feeling. He knew what they were asking for. 
how beautiful it is to know that. That the word tells us that Jesus was tried in everything. And through the fire as he was tempted and tempted over and over with these things. To make him sin once, he was without sin. Just once. That's all he needed for the sacrifice not to be the full, full propitiation. Once, just once he had to give in. And he didn't. One thing, like a lie, like stealing a cookie, something, just one little thing. I have a hundred things that I did today. You know, it's like, it's just uncomprehendable. He knew what they were going through. And on top of that, why did he go? Because uh, we just talked about the fact that he resurrected, but why did he go? Why did he come down? He showed himself to the 500, and then he left. When the apostles asked him, why do you have to leave? Aren't you going to set up a kingdom? No, he had to go. If I don't go, you will not be able to receive what? The Holy Spirit. You won't even begin to realize the things that I'm going to give to you through the Holy Spirit. He, not only is he the comforter, he is a teacher of all things. We don't know nothing without the Holy Spirit. We could research history all we want, but with the Holy Spirit, I have nothing. Without the Holy Spirit, I have nothing. I could come here and I could be a history teacher. I could come here and teach you history all day long. But without the Holy Spirit, I can't impart to you a message of comfort. I can't impart to you what the, thus saith the Lord. Just that is why he had to go. And when he said in Romans 8.26, it says, But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. These groanings, imagine how deep they were for this church. Imagine how gruesome the spirit was just after seeing martyr after martyr. But we are told that Jesus, he lives to make intercession for them, for us. Right? He says, I am dead and now I'm alive. What is he alive for? To make intercession for us. To intercede. There's only one mediator between God and man. Who stands there with his arms open? It's like that's it. It's only Jesus. There's no one but me. That's why he had to go to the Father. Not only to prove that he's king over death, but like he said, that he may impart to us the promise of the Holy Spirit. That he may send the comforter. That he may send the teacher of all things. That through the Spirit we may know Jesus more. That we may know the full attributes. That we may know the full characteristics. That we may know what he looks like. If the Spirit wasn't there, John wouldn't have received the vision of what Jesus looked like. We're told that the Word is, is God-breathed. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're told. And that's, what, that's why He had to go. That He may then, once equipping us with the Holy Spirit, once giving us all the gifts, once just teaching us all things, that we may be ready for the marriage. That we may be ready for his return. That is why he had to go. So these are the things. These are the facts that Jesus proclaims to the church. And it's, it's what makes Christianity different from every other belief system. This right here, this promise of the Holy Spirit. No other, no other belief system, no other religion has any promises like this. They don't send a comforter. They tell you to do stuff in the name of God. They tell you to go and, and, and do these things and do these procedures and follow these rules that you may know stuff. That you may have it up here. And that's fine. You could have it up here. But up here isn't going to get you up there. You know? it, And this is what makes it completely different from every other religion. We must recognize that the power of this promise of the Holy Spirit, it's the fullness of the Godhead. We must realize that the, the, the fullness, that, that promise, without, without that promise, the, the, the Trinity isn't complete. Because we would only have God and we would only have a sacrifice. And we are told that God 
is one and in three persons. Right? That's what we're told. And that's what we read. And not only that, but we've proven it. First John chapter 5, it proves it. It proves that the Trinity is true, that they're all one, and they're all witnesses of one. Right? Each of them testifies of each other, and they're all in, in, in order. It's perfect. It's good. That's what it's for. They, all, they, they don't cause division between one another. The Spirit bears witness. The God bears witness. Jesus bears witness of each other, and they're all in one. It's not like a team that's divided. And it's good. That's that's what it's for. So these groanings, we see that that imagine I just come to think what the spirit whispers to these people. Because the thing is, is the church then is is still alive. This church is still alive. There's people still being persecuted. Imagine the things that are taught from the underground church in China. Imagine the things that are, the Holy Spirit whispers to these people. The word of the Lord for them. It's different from us. It's different from us because we don't have persecution here. But man, how just deep the groanings must be. How crazy, how the words of comfort, the things that he teaches from the pulpit. How just beyond belief they must be. It'd be a rat. You'd probably get saved again. If we went over there right now, we went to China, we went to a service, I'd raise my hand before they even, just like I did with Joey here when, he, when I first got saved, I raised my hand before he even did an altar call. Before he was halfway through his message, I knew I needed what he was saying. Because he was preaching truth. He was preaching, preaching the full gospel. He knew that I needed this, this triune God. He knew that I needed these promises. And that's what he taught. And that's what I hope to teach. If I ever teach anything different than from this book, dude, fire me. You know, I don't want to be here if I'm not going to teach from this. Because, dude, only he has the words. Where else are we going to find the words of life? Where else can we go? Right? So we see that not only did he knew their works and their tribulation, but he also knew their poverty. Why were these Christians poor? Were they disobedient? Did they tithe? Were they in sin? Why didn't the prosperity doctrine work in this church? If this prosperity doctrine is indeed biblical, if it's of the Lord, why isn't it for every church? We must apply, if, if, if something is of the Lord, we must apply it to everybody, right? It's not like, oh, the promise is only good for the church of Orange County. No. Viewing the church, fast forwarding it to, to, to this day, why do we see K.P. Yohannan just longing for people to give, give money to, sponsoring one missionary, 30 bucks a month. That is all he's asking for. I spend 30 bucks a week at, at co in coffee, on coffee. But yet, I'm not willing to give it up for one missionary that's starving and wanting and hungry to give the word to these dying and lost people. Why is he doing this? It's because they are indeed poor. They are extremely poor. You can't talk about a prosperity doctrine, about a dream, about having money, about living in Ibiza, about having Bentleys and mansions. You can't talk to them about these dreams if they're having nightmares about being persecuted. You can't talk to them about dreams when they're night at night they're haunted by things and demons that are trying to oppress them, a dark oppression over them because they're being persecuted. They're being lied to by Satan that they may fall away from the Lord, that they may go and try to serve the God of comfort and the God of, 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 of wealth. You can't tell them that. I don't, it, a pastor, I forgot, I have his podcast, but the one thing he said is this, do this doctrine, this prosperity doctrine, you have all these people from Africa going to this one church because this one pastor is preaching it, but they're coming away empty-handed. 
They're like, they're traveling. Imagine just kind of like Jacob and all his sons. Or, or when uh, Jacob actually went back to Joseph, how they had to carry Joseph because he was so old. They had to carry him to go see his son. And he was excited because he knew his son lived. And all he wanted to do was have him put his hand under his thigh and give him a promise. Imagine going this far to a church just because you heard that you could be rich. And Jesus, to this church, he says, I know your works. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And even though you're doing all these things are going on, you are more rich than the richest person on this earth. You have more wealth. You have more stored up. You have more in stocks than anybody because you're spiritually rich, and that's on a whole nother level. It's a whole different monetary system. Now, re rewinding to that church, the thing is, is that they were being employed by pagans. Pagans had the, they had the power. Why? Because they did serve Caesar. They had the power. So what, happen, what would happen is, they would cut their wages. They would say, oh, look at so-and-so, Jesse, you know, uh, Carrie, you, you guys are all going to work the same amount of hours, right? Actually, Jesse, you know what? You're a pagan, so you're only going to work 40. Carrie, you're going to work 70. And I'm going to pay Jesse more than you because you worship Jesus. And then after, when Jesse is just chilling and he doesn't do his job right, I'm going to fire you because you worship Jesus. And you're under him. And just because he didn't do good, you're going to be fired. Imagine, they were being fired. They were being taxed. They were being persecuted because they worship Jesus. They didn't want to hire these people. But the Lord was their portion. Their Lord put food on the table. Their Lord gave them clothing and shelter. Psalm 37. Verse 16, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. In the days of the famine they shall be satisfied, but the wicked shall perish. And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the metal, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. Going down to 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. He is ever merciful, and lands, and his descendants are blessed. This is what they had to hold on to. Never forsaken, never begging for bread, because Jesus was their portion. Although they were poor on this earth, Jesus claims to them, you are rich. And that's all they needed to hear. When they're screaming, Lord, when is this going to be over? Lord, when are we going to have food on the table? Lord, when are you going to supply enough need for us to have and for kids not to be dying? When are you going to do this, Lord? He says, you are rich. Don't worry about that stuff. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How could people fast for 40 days straight? Because the Lord is their portion. They had to go to the bread that satisfied. They had to go to the water where they never thirst. That's where they had to go. Funny thing is, in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, the poor and the persecuted have the same promise. The poor and the persecuted, all the Lord could say to them is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that funny? All the other ones, they're all different. But that one, they're the same. They coincide. They're parallel. Jesus is fully aware and completely in complete omniscience of their situation. In the glory days of the Renaissance papacy, a man walked with the Pope through the Vatican. And he was walking, and the Pope says, 
we no longer have to be like Peter and say, silver and gold we have not. And the guy says, yeah, but neither can you say rise up and walk. How, imagine, there is no power in wealth. You can't say, here's money, rise up and walk. Jesus could not go to the paralytic and say, hey, heal yourself. Here's a bag of silver. He couldn't do that. He had to give him the words from his mouth. Rise up and walk. There is power in that, not in wealth. Where can we go? Where can we go? The Lord is the only one that has the words of life. His response, he says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Literally meaning, stop being afraid. Stop being a scaredy cat. Don't you know that my love casts out all fear? Don't you know that if you keep yourself in the love of Jesus, you will fear no evil. There will be no fear because his love overshadows that. It overwhelms that fear. Many people today struggle with fear and anxiety and things of the like. And I know some of this stuff is physical. And I know some of this stuff is up here and it messes with you. And it could be a demonic influence. It could be Satan trying to, trying to numb you. But the thing is, if we were to hold on to this promise of his love, cast out all fear his love that was on the cross if you would just pay attention like peter focus on jesus we would walk on water and not sink if we can't relate to the persecution part of this message here this church we can relate to this we are never to be in a defensive on the defense the cross is an offense an offense right but the cross is what it's victorious. The victory is already there. It's just a matter of do you want to be on the winning team or do you want to be on the losing team? And the thing is, is if we're on the defensive, we're scared. We're defending ourselves. We're putting up our guard with, our, with us, with our capabilities. Because what does the Lord tell us to do? He says, arm yourself with the spiritual armor. That doesn't come from us. It's not made from us. Salvation, the helmet of salvation is what? It's of the Lord. He tells us, wear this. This isn't made with hands. This doesn't come through your capabilities. It doesn't come through your abilities. It doesn't come through your, your talents, your so-called talents, that you, your accolades that you put on your resume. It doesn't come from that. It comes from me, the Lord of hosts. Indeed, he says that, that Satan, he says, uh, where are we at? Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. He's allowing the people to go through this, that they may have no other choice but to tap into the promises of God. Like we sing, they stand high with, with arms high and heart abandoned. They have no other place to go. Why? Because no other fluffy doctrine, no other seeker-friendly church will accept them because they know it doesn't comfort them. It doesn't fill the need. It doesn't fill the void. It doesn't do that stuff. Don't you see that the doctrine, the, the fluffed up doctrine, what does it do? It's like a pep talk. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel like, oh, yeah, kumbaya, woohoo, you know? Oh, let me have, you know, I want a cookie now. No, that's not what it's about. It's, it goes way much deeper than that. It's like, here you have salvation in a circle, and you're trying to get to the core because the core is Jesus. And you start peeling it off, and you're like, oh, cool, salvation. Yeah, I've experienced it. That's all I want. You don't have the meat of the fruit. You don't have the wedges of the orange. You can't get to the middle. 
because you haven't partaken of the fruit of the Spirit. Do you understand that? The, the salvation is, yes, we believe in Jesus here, around, on the surface. But if we really want to get deep, if we really want to get to the core of who Jesus is, we must, we must start acting. We must start being legit Christians. We must start, stop compromising. We must stop having other idols before us. We must stop putting something in first place and putting Jesus in second place. We need to stop doing that. We need to learn how to tap into the promises of Jesus. We need to stop. He doesn't set us up for failure. He wants us to experience the fullness of who he is. He wants us to do that. Why would he give us all these promises if, if, if we're not going to experience them? Why would he say, oh, yes, check out all these promises for you, but you're only going to experience 70% of them. You're only going to have 70% of the buffet. You're not going to partake of dessert and the marriage supper. He doesn't say that. He wants you to be, he wants you to know who he is from the beginning, from the beginning to the end. Right? He is eternal, right? He wants to know, he wants you to know him throughout the realm of eternity. He wants you to know him here, what he's doing here. He wants you to know that. Someone once said, find out where the Spirit is moving and go there. I mean, I'm not one to just pack up and leave, but I want to know what the Spirit is doing everywhere. When I found out that the Spirit was moving in Carpinteria, I went over there and I wanted to see what was going on. When I first got saved... You know, I heard of all these concerts. I've heard that the Holy Spirit was moving. And I went and I got saved. I went to WG and got saved. You know, I want to see the Lord at work. We need to want that. It's not just, oh, okay, we're, you know, Orange County Christians and that's it. We'll go to church once a week, tithe. That's it. No. There's so much more. In that the Lord is glorified in our tithing, the Lord is glorified in the in the gathering of the brethren, but there's so much more He has for us. There's so much more, like this church, the Church of Smyrna. They had to experience the fullness of the Lord. Why? Because that's all they had to go through the persecution. That's all they had. They had to know what Jesus was saying, or else they would fall away. They would fall away. They would they, they would have nothing. They would have no warm and fuzzy feeling. The spirit, if they didn't, if they weren't longing for what the spirit was saying, what would they do? They would they would bank on their own capabilities. And what would that do? Fail, big F. So not only must you understand that he's not setting us up for failure, he wants us to experience the fullness of who he is. But on top of that, he wants to show us his power the very power that resurrected him from the dead he wants to put that on display we are told he was made a spectacle on the cross that very power he wants to make to for us to display that very power he wants us to partake in that very power in trials and tribulation but also in, in his provision. We always glorify him when he provides for us. But what about in trials and in tribulation? Do we do that? You know, it's... It's hard. It's hard to do it. It's hard to be like, Oh, brother, everything is going great. No, it's hard. We're just like, don't even talk to me right now. I need to go see Jesus. I need to go worship. Has anybody tell you that when you go, they just grab the bulletin and they're like, I need to go worship. They're going through it. There's stuff happening. Things are hitting fans. It's going everywhere. Stuff, just everything, everywhere. People are throwing stuff. People are dying. And yet people still have this longing to need to go to Jesus to worship him, to be at his feet. That he may put his hand upon them and heal them, right? First Peter chapter one, verse six through seven. It says, "In this you greatly rejoice, though though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, 
being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only, in, not only do these trials display our trust and faith in Jesus, but they also bring Him glory. They bring Him honor. We end up praising Him. In, in, in our perseverance, He is glorified. This was their hope. This is what the people of Smyrna lived for, that the name of Jesus be lifted high, that the name of person and person of Jesus would be represented legitimately. In the midst of all this persecution, they wanted to represent Jesus right. Not so that they would receive praise or recognition. As a matter of fact, Jesus had nothing to give them. What does he say? He says, after these 10 days, he says, he says, persevere through these 10 days. What does that say? 10 is a definite number. It definitely ends. Okay, it's like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, 10. He says, that's it. After 10, that's it. It stops. There's a definite end to these 10 days. He says, be faithful until the end. Literally, become faithful until death. Perfect your faithfulness in Christ Jesus. Strive for faithfulness. Keep on keeping on. That's what he's saying. He says, don't just, okay, be faithful. He says, perfect it. Perfect being faithful. There's one thing to be faithful. You could say, oh, I'm faithful. And then next day, something happens. You're not faithful. You cheated on Jesus. You were an idolater to Jesus. Do we not know that his bride is pure? That his bride is not idolatrous? That his, pride, his bride is a virgin? Because that's how he ordains marriage. He never sees it as a, oh, okay, I'm marrying a harlot. In Hosea, he, he did say that, though, because of Israel and their idolatrous state. We need to perfect faithfulness that at that day, at the end of that day, when we breathe our last, he'll take that shelf, the crown off the shelf and put it on our head and say, well done, and good and faithful servant. You've been faithful You've perfected faithfulness in the little things. Now come and partake of the glory of who I am. As Peter said, in the revelation of Jesus Christ and knowing him more. This book, the revelation, is about knowing Jesus more. Knowing him better that we may know who he is when he comes back. That was their only goal. In Smyrna, that was their banner. To know Jesus more. Because that's all they had. They couldn't go and worship freely. They couldn't go and pass out tracts. They couldn't glorify and seeing fruit. It would all had, had to be hush hush. And it's still going on to this day. In China. Everywhere. In India. We hear people beaten down. Churches burned. And he says... He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This second death, it's literally hell. It's the lake of fire, a fire where the worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. This is what he's talking about. A, a, a commentator said, The second death was a Jewish rabbinic expression for the total extinction of of the utterly wicked. Revelation 21. I'm going to go to the latter half. Where it says. But the cowardly. The unbelieving. The abominable. Murderers. Sexually immoral. Sorcerers. Idolaters. And all liars. Shall have their part. In the, in the lake. Which burns with fire and brimstone. Which is the second death. This second death. That's who's going to take part of that take part in that 
That's who's going to expand those people that I just listed off right there. And we belong there. We belong there. We more than anybody else belong there. But Jesus in his mercy and his grace has poured out his blood for us. That we may not partake in that second death. For he already, he already partook for us. He already went there. He went there that he may know what death feels like. That he may love us more, that he may show us more love, that he may keep loving us unconditionally, whether we fail, whether we become unfaithful, he may love us more because he doesn't want us to go there. He's willing that none should perish. He doesn't want anything. He doesn't want the second death for anybody. And then going back to Revelation 21, for the overcomers, for the faithful, for the just, for those who do not conform, for those who choose life, for those that don't give up, there will be no second death. What does it say? Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Literally, he's living with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things that passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my child. He who overcomes. The church of Smyrna had no other choice but to overcome. It was either that or go be with the Lord. Because what? They were being burned at the stake. Their pastor, Polycarp, was burned. But what happened? Check this out. This guy had a, had a dream. He was, he, he, they told him, Polycarp, you need to leave. You need to go. And he believed that, okay, this is the word of the Lord. I need to leave. I need to go, and I'm going to go in hiding. He goes and hides out. And he's in somebody's barn, and he's sleeping. And he has a dream of his pillow catching on fire. And he says, and, 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 and then this word came to him. Don't worry. Do not be afraid. I am with you, Polycarp. He goes back to his church. And they go, and he goes straight to the arena. He knew that the, the, that the Christians were being killed, and he had to go stand up for the truth. He goes, passes his church, goes to the arena, and there they are. Do you guys remember Gladiator, the movie Gladiator, in the arena, when, when they were they're killing all the slaves? And they, you know, they, you like uh, um, the, the guy, the slave owner guy, I forgot his name. But he goes, he's like, you will die, and you will die at the sound of this. They were doing that to the Christians. They had lions ready to devour these Christians. And yet Polycarp goes through, and, and the crowd is chanting, bring out the lions. But the lions had already been put away. And then they go, burn them at the stake. So they build this all this pile of wood. They bring it together. They put them on a stake. And they start burning it. And, and he hears the word of the Lord saying, Polycarp, do not be afraid. Do not recant. And he's there. And the fire goes up. Woof! It goes up into flame. And what happens? Polycarp does not get burned. The same thing that happened to Daniel. The fire there. And nothing, not one lick, touched him. Finally, they say, 
they used to call the Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the Romans God, Roman gods. And they go, kill the atheist. And he says, I'm no atheist. I believe in God. Look it. He's yelling out, I'm not burning. You created this fire and I'm not burning. Somebody, one of the guards gets a stake and drives it through his heart and water comes out and starts putting out the fire and he's dead. The water starts going onto the fire and you just see smoke coming out. But he's dead. And there was other Christians in the crowd that might have been compromising. And they saw him and they heard a voice from heaven say, Polycarp, do not be afraid. There is another French historian that tells of a story in Fox's Book of Martyrs in the in England in a place called Smithfield. And there's a guy who was being who was charged guilty of being a Christian. And he's put in jail for a good ten years. And uh in these ten years, when he first got put in jail, his wife was pregnant, right? And it was time for his death. It was it, it was time for him to be burned at the stake. And they walk him, they used to parade the Christians to be burned. They walk him through the city, and in the middle of the city is a stake. And they walk him through the city, and right before, the governor said, bring his family, and put his family before the cross. And so they're walking him, and there he begins, and he sees his family, eight kids, one of whom he's never seen before. And he's got his hands tied behind his back. Right? And he says, the governor stops him right at his wife and says, Look, I have your family here. All you have to do is recant the name of Jesus. And what does he say? He says, Though my dinner is bitter, my breakfast will be sweet because it will be with the Lord. Walks around his family and says, Tie it tight. I will never recant. That's the heart that was with these people. It was that deep. We don't go that deep because we don't have persecution. But imagine if we did go that deep. If compromising a little bit would be our end. If, if recanting Jesus would be our end. If we really stood up for the name of Jesus, if we really proclaimed him for who he is to everybody. Brian Whitley had a song, go tell somebody, go share with somebody about Jesus. It was when his grandpa had died and he hadn't shared with him. He's encouraging his people, the people, the Christian people to stand up, go share with somebody. We're making tracks, go give them out to people. They need to know we're compromising in this, that we're not being evangelical. We're compromising in that we're not, on a day-to-day -day basis, we're not proclaiming the holiness, the righteousness of who Jesus is. And that's what I think we need to walk away from. We need to perfect faithfulness. We need to know Jesus more. We need to listen and partake of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Because there's so much, there's a huge buffet out there of promises. How much, when are you willing to say, I've had enough? Is it till the end? Is it halfway? Is it three quarters? Because Jesus has all this stuff for us. It's just, are you willing to partake of everything and not just go halfway? That's the question tonight. Are we willing to go the 100%? Are we willing to not compromise in anything? Are we willing to put away any idols? Are we willing to enthrone Jesus and not de-God Him? Are we willing to, to, to not put Him as second place in our life? Lord, this is hard for us.
we need there's things lord in our hearts there's things in our lives lord that we put before you god lord whether they're little or they're big god we we know that we need to remove them now lord we want to be the pure bride we want to be pure we want to be holy we want to be faithful lord to you lord during this engagement that we're in with you right now as the bride of christ during this engagement lord may we adorn ourselves with who you are may we prepare ourselves may we know you more that at that day we may know our husband and know that he is the husband for us for this church lord prepare us for that day impart to us give us the power of your holy spirit that's all we have to bank on lord we ask it Lord, we, we beg of you, Lord, to, to give us your Holy Spirit, to refresh us, to empty us out of the old. And, Lord, that you may say, Behold, I make all things new. Lord, give us a new, give us, uh, empty us out, Lord, empty us out, baptize us right now with the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, your Holy Spirit comes in three forms, and one of them is refreshing. Lord, that's what we need right now. A refreshing spirit upon us. Lord, your Holy Spirit, empty us out of ourselves. And Lord, fill us with a new, the times when we repent, that times of refreshing may come. Lord, we repent on having things before you. We repent on being idolatrous. We repent on conforming to this world. We repent on being compromising to you uncompromising in little areas lord father we don't want to have anything we don't want you to have any bad things to say about us lord just teach us teach us lord how to be like you how to love like you in jesus name amen